If you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read <clears throat> verses 12 through 20 this morning. I mentioned last week that we had taken a, a bigger section of Scripture. I was a little too hasty thinking that I could accomplish a lot more than I did. Uh, so we're going to go back a, a couple sermons more before we finish that section. Um, we're going to focus on one main point today about Christ being the yes of God. And um, I hope that it makes sense to you. Um, so let's, uh, let's uh, hear God's word together. Beginning at verse 12. <clears throat> For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help as we read your word this day. We pray that you would give us, again, hearts to believe it. We pray that we would understand its meaning, uh, that just as the original believers in Corinth were trying to understand what Paul was saying, Lord, you would help us to understand what he meant, and that we in turn would be able to add our amen to the yes of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a book that came out and a movie that corresponded with it just a few years ago called Yes Day. Uh, if you have children, maybe you've seen this movie. It's basically about a, a family, a husband and wife with three children. And in one particular evening, the, the couple are called to a teacher-parent conference at school in which they uh, are told that both of their youngest children have submitted an assignment referring to their mom as a dictator. <clears throat> and uh, that obviously doesn't sit well with mom, and so she expresses her frustration to her husband. They sort of have a fight about how he always makes her play the role of bad cop, and he's the good cop, and et cetera, et cetera. A school employee walking by overhears this conversation and tells them a little bit about his own uh, solution to some of these problems in their own home, and he encourages them to establish a 24-hour period of time in which the parents cannot say no to the kids. They call it Yes Day. So the parents go home, they pitch this idea to the kids and promising that if the kids keep up their grades, do their chores, and stay out of trouble, they will get this yes day as a reward. Well, eventually the children get it, and, and so they wake up early in the morning and make them do, the parents do things they wouldn't normally do. Like, for instance, uh, as soon as they get up, they 
tell mom that she has to dress up in some crazy outfit that she would normally never wear, but be forced to wear that out in public all day long. And she says, yes. Then they go to an ice cream shop, and, and uh, they ask to order the $40 Sunday, the one that you'll get for free if you can eat it all within 30 minutes. And so the family has to say yes. They start eating the ice cream together to, to, and uh, have ice cream all over their faces, et cetera, et cetera. They get a little bit more crazy. The kids say they want to go through the drive-through, you know, the one where the, the not the, not the drive-through, the, the car wash, the one you drive the car through, the car wash. But they want to do it with the windows down. And the parents have to say yes. And so they do. And et cetera, et cetera. It eventually gets a little bit more complicated because now the, there's one teenage daughter and two younger kids who want things that they know their parents would normally say no to and have asked in the past and they've said no, but now they have to say yes. And so they say yes, which, as you can imagine, leads to all sorts of complications. The kids get involved in awful things, sinful things. And the moral of the story basically is this. You know, sometimes parents might need to lighten up and enjoy their family and say yes from time to time. Kids need to understand why parents say no at times. And even sometimes other parents might need to learn to say no more firmly based upon the situation. So I'll let you see the uh, the, the show if you want to watch it. But basically, it's this concept of there's a reason for yes <clears throat> and there's a reason for no. Well, I, th I think for many children, including myself when I was a young lad, uh, grew up believing that Christianity is just one long list of rules in which God says no, 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 over and over again. Christianity being this perceived negative religion. If you think about it, the very first commandment that's given in Scripture is given to Adam in the Garden of Eden, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden, uh, the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, we forget, and Satan often reminds us that uh, <clears throat> of our forgetfulness in that regard, but uh, uh, trying to make us forget. But outside of that one command of don't eat that tree, every other tree was free to eat from. So he had given a blessing to eat from all of these trees. And if you think about a garden and you know, forest, if you will, of trees, hundreds and hundreds of trees they could eat from, they just couldn't eat from this one, right? Same way, though, if you think about the Ten Commandments, most people think of the Ten Commandments as being all negative commands, and, and for the most part, they are. Right? You go through the list, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor. The only positive command that's given in the Ten Commandments is the one considering giving honor to one's mother and father. Even the Sabbath day, it seems positive at first. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then he says, you shall not do any work on that particular day. But really the only sole positive command given at Mount Sinai is the one which you're to honor both parents. And I think that's perhaps a mercy to the parents, given the fact that the mother and father are the ones that are always having to say no to the kids. So finally there's one commandment in which they're told to say yes to mom and dad instead of no uh, in that regard. But in fact, if you were to do a simple search in the ESV Bible online, type in the phrase, you shall not, you'll find 315 hits in the Old Testament alone. Type in the word no or not into the Bible, search engine will return 5,000 results. Lots of no's, lots of nots. If you try to type in the word yes, 
you only find it 60 times throughout the entire Bible. Now, this is a really good reason why never to form your theology based upon word searches. There's a lot more to Scripture than just certain words and how they're used. But although there are all these no answers and all these thou shalt not commands, most of them are not merely activities that are forbidden, but also thoughts, evil desires, and wishes that tend to ruin our character and ruin any appetite for God. But all of these commands are really subcommands, if you will, of the two greatest commands that are given in Scripture that are both all positive in nature, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If we would be able to do those two things, there would be no need for any thou shalt nots in Scripture. None of them would ever be given if you just simply loved the Lord your God and loved your neighbor as yourself. But it's the very fact that we don't do that, that we're sinners who have broken God's law. That's why these no commands are given. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. It's because we are sinners. He says, for the law was not laid down for the just, but for whom? For the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's why the law is given, because we, we say no to God when he gives us is yes. So as long as we're still prone to sin, as long as we're still prone to wander in this fallen world, the law will continue to say no to ungodliness. That's actually the mercy of God that he does that. In fact, we're thankful that now through the resurrection of Christ for the first time, we can hear the word yes come from God. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, enlisting the fruit of the Spirit that begins with love and ends with self-control, Paul says, against such things, there is no law. In other words, he will never say no to these things, ever. It will always be yes, because these are the things that God loves. These are the things that God promotes. In other words, in the life that God calls us to live through faith in Christ, there is now a new principle at work through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that enables us to hear and delight in God's yes in a way that we never could before. All we could see was the law, and it's no, you shall not, and therefore you shall be condemned. For the first time, we hear something of God's yes. Before we get to that and explain that more in detail, I wanted to remind us a little bit of the context in which this is written, this, this verse. I said last week the Apostle Paul had informed the Corinthians in the previous letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 and following, that he was intending on visiting uh, the Corinthians and was wanting to spend the winter with them in Corinth prior to sailing across the Mediterranean back to Judea in order to deliver some gifts uh, to the suffering Christians there in Judea. But something had happened. He had, had heard the, of a discipline case that had gone wrong, and we'll talk about that in a couple chapters from now, of how the people of God were not uh, taking the holiness of the church seriously. There was something that was really gone awry. So Paul felt the need to immediately go visit them rather than coming to see them later on like he had promised. And that visit didn't go well. In fact, it went so badly that even when he left, he was somewhat reluctant to come back immediately because he was afraid he was going to come back and cause them even more pain and grief because they had not done what they were supposed to do. But thankfully, 
as he was on his way in, in to Macedonia there, he met Titus, who had given him a good report that they, in fact, did respond well to that letter and had repented of, of their sin and now were eager to, to have Paul come to them. And so Paul changes his mind, and he decides he wants to go and see them again for a second time. So as a result of this, though, there are some in the church, his detractors, his accusers, if you will, those who were false prophets who had taken leadership for themselves apart from God's ordination, who were calling him temperamental, who were accusing him of being wishy-washy, who were saying that uh, he was even being manipulative in his words, promising one thing and then doing another. And so they were inferring that he couldn't be trusted and therefore his message couldn't be trusted either. So Paul responds to them. Verse 13. This is where I'm trying to catch you up to speed now. Verse 13 says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. In other words, I've been speaking to you with all sincerity. I'm not trying to say one thing out of one side of my mouth and another in some other way or in some other meaning. The reason why I changed my plans is not because I'm wishy-washy. It's not because I'm self-centered and, and don't care about you. In fact, it's because I do care about you. I love you that I didn't want to come originally because I was afraid that it would cause more damage than it would bring more joy. In fact, he says, we're working for your joy. I don't want to bring you unnecessary pain. So I was delaying my visit, not trying to renounce my visit, but delaying it to a later date. But because of the, the letter that had come to him through Titus, now he was excited to go see them again. So verse 15 and 16, he explains his renewed intentions of visiting them twice instead of once. Originally, his promise was to spend one winter with them, but now he wants to see them two times to give them a second experience of grace. We'll talk about that again later on in chapters 8 and 9. What he means by that second experience of grace is not that they would have extra spiritual gifts in that sense, but rather that they would have a second opportunity to help him on his way and to load him down with more gifts to give to the people in Judea that it was actually a grace of giving is what he was giving them the opportunity to do, but we'll talk about that later. Today, I want to focus instead on the questions that he puts to them in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Of course, the, the, the questions are meant to be answered in the negative. He didn't mean to do this. He wasn't trying to do this. He, again, wanted to give them joy. He, he delayed his visit because of love, not because of anything else. So Paul was not saying yes to them with any intention of later saying no to them. He wanted to only be a blessing to them. And so the way it's worded here in the Greek is meant to be very obvious. You can't have yes and no at the same time. Perhaps many other kids did this as well, but I was very well known for it as a child. My mother hated it. Um, but as a child, my mother would ask me questions, and I purposely would say yes or no. I didn't do it to manipulate her. I didn't do it to confuse her. I did it because I thought I was being funny. She didn't think it was being funny because she never knew what I meant, what I was trying to say. You could see how it would be very confusing. Don't say yes and no at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. And so, as I said last week, the complaint against Paul seems kind of petty, not because I don't think it's important for people to keep their word, but because he had not done something like this. He had not given them any reason to second-guess him. He was very plain in his language. He wasn't trying to be uh, overly uh, difficult in that sense. Paul was not playing games. He was very clear. 
And so they, they shouldn't have been questioning his intentions. He had very clear intentions, very clear words. The problem is not that someone shouldn't keep their word, but in this case, the problem was the fact that they were assuming evil intentions on his part, which is really unfair. And I've seen that many times in the church when people begin to question your motives without a reason for doing so. That's bad. That's evil. They didn't have any reason to do this for him. But on the other hand, it's very important to keep your word as a believer in Christ. And, and there's a parable that Jesus gives in the Gospels of two sons. The father goes up to the first son and wants him to work in the vineyard. And, and, and so he goes up to him and says, I, I want you to, to work there. But the son says, no, I will not. But then afterwards, he changes his mind and he goes and works after all, right? And then the second son, the, the son says, yes, I will go. But then he doesn't. And the question is asked to the crowd, which of the two sons actually does the will of the father? Obviously, he's referring to the first one rather than the second. But here the detractors are saying Paul is like the second son, that you're a liar. You're a manipulator. You don't keep your word. And that's a big problem, very big problem. They weren't just accusing Paul of changing his mind, but inferring that somehow he couldn't be trusted as a messenger of God because he's so back and forth on what he says, what he means. So the question is asked in verse 17 concerning the making of plans according to the flesh and saying yes and no at the same time. It has to be answered in the negative. Now, it's important to understand what, what, what is he referring to? Why is he saying yes, yes, and no, no? What, where does that even come from? He's, he's using the terminology that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, if you remember, was talking to the disciples and was explaining to them the importance of keeping their word. And also the importance of not giving unnecessary oaths or vows to confirm your word, right? So in other words, if you remember the Pharisees, the teachers of the laws, and others were basically saying, you can swear, but don't swear in God's name, but now swear according to the gold of the temple, or swear according to the hairs on your head, but don't swear according to the name of the Lord, because if you break your word, then that's blaspheming God. So, But by swearing on these other things, that gave them a reason to get out of their word, you see. And so Jesus is telling them, don't swear by anything in that regard, but just use your yes and mean it as yes. And when you say no, mean it as no. And that should be enough in normal situations. But Jesus is not saying, and, and you'll, this will bear out later in the New Testament, you'll see it many times, he's not saying you can never take an oath. He's just saying in normal circumstances, you should not have to, because people should know you by your trustworthiness that you tell the truth. If you say yes, you mean yes. If you say no, you mean no. Of course, there are certain situations in which your truthfulness and the seriousness of the matter are so important that you have to give some sort of evidence, if you will, testimony that what you're saying is true. And so we see that. Paul does this later on. Even Jesus, even God does this. He, he, he calls his own name into account and says, by my own name, I swear to you, this is true. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm, 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 I promise you, I'm telling you the truth. Now, these are only in very important circumstances at the time. We think of them in, in the situation of a courtroom, right? Are you going to tell the truth? I swear I will. In a marriage ceremony, do you take this woman? I vow. I, I make an oath to God that I do take her and will keep her until the end. Same thing in reference to even church membership. We make a vow unto God that I will be this person who seeks to grow as a Christian in good conduct and trying to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. There, there are times in which we are to give a, an extra word, if you will, but not in normal situations. If, if you have a Christian who's constantly going around saying, I swear on the Bible, I'm telling the truth, 
then that infers that that person is not normally telling the truth. You shouldn't have to do that. So that's what he's, that's what he's saying here, right? So, so let me put this in context for you. So I was preparing the sermon, uh, this time at a different coffee shop. Normally I'm at Tim Hortons, in case anybody wants to know. I was at Dunkin' Donuts this time. Uh, I was in the mood for Dunkin', I don't know why. Said Dunkin' Donuts, as I was typing this very sentence about keeping your word, on the radio, I hear a song, 1986, Peter Santerra and Amy Grant. The song is, Next Time I Fall in Love, It Will Be With You. It was number one on the charts that year. Number one. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't care, that's okay. The point is this, Amy Grant had been married just four years prior. This is the first song she ever sang in the pop realm. She was always a Christian singer. She only sang Christian songs, hymns, what have you. But for some reason, she wants to have a greater audience, so she goes over to the secular realm, and the first song she sings is, Next Time I Fall in Love, It Will Be With You. She just got married. Now she wants to sing about falling in love again to someone else. I'm sure she didn't put two and two together in that regard. Didn't think anything of it. Peter Santera never heard of Amy Grant. How did she end up being with him? He was purposely looking for someone who wasn't as well-known to sing a duet. Someone had told him about Amy Grant, and when he found out that she was a Christian, he says, I like what she stands for. I want her to sing with me. So there you have it. Amy Grant starts to sing with Peter Santera. First song she ever sings in the secular realm becomes number one immediately. Shot to fame. Seven years later, after the song is number one, Amy Grant experiences her own next time I fall in love, it will be with you moment with famous country singer Vince Gill. After meeting Gill on a Christmas special, she goes home to her husband and, quote, says, I don't love you anymore. You're the biggest mistake I've ever made, and I've given my heart to another man. She divorces him and marries Gill. Of course, Amy still wants to sing Christian music in addition to the secular music, but now she's very upset by the fact that many Christians don't want to buy her stuff anymore. Wonder why. She's a woman who doesn't keep her word. She says yes, yes, and then later says no, no. Even under a vow unto God, doesn't keep her word and thinks that that shouldn't make any difference as far as her ministry. Now, if you can think of it in this way, if the Apostle Paul had done something similar, and then is giving the gospel to this church as an apostle of God, can you not in any way wonder why they would have a hard time with that. But that's not what he's done. He has not spoken out of one side of his mouth and then said another. He has been faithful in trying to give them a blessing and to love them, but he's delayed. That's all he's done, but yet they're accusing him as if he has done something like Amy Grant had done. It's not the case. In fact, in the passage we read earlier in Numbers chapter 23, in reference to Balaam defending his benediction pronounced upon the nation of Israel, um, if you remember, King Barak had hired him to curse Israel, but three times, every time he opens his mouth to curse, instead out comes blessing. And this infuriates the king. And so Balaam says to him, he says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed. I cannot provoke it or revoke it. So what does that mean? So what it means is that God has pronounced his yes upon the people of God. Therefore, no one can pronounce a no upon them. If he is blessed, he cannot be cursed. 
Paul's essentially making the same argument in this text. Verse 18, he says, As surely as God is faithful, our word has not been yes and no. It's only been yes. I have been called to be a blessing to the church of God. You are the church of God. I have pronounced this blessing upon you. I have told you that I'm coming to bring a blessing to you, and now I'm bringing you a double blessing. I'm not bringing a curse. I'm not saying no to you. I'm saying yes. And therefore... The apostle is, is, is calling upon, if you look at it, he's actually using an oath form. He's saying, as God is faithful, he's calling upon God's name to prove that what he's saying is true. As he's faithful, I'm being faithful to you. I've loved you. I will bless you. I think I've shared with some of you before, perhaps in the sermon, uh, about the backstory of the 19th century hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. George Matheson was only 19 years old when suddenly he began losing his eyesight. He was in seminary at the time. Unbeknownst to him, he had an incurable condition that would eventually result in total blindness. He was, every day, he was losing more and more of his sight. Now, as difficult as that news would have been to him, what made it all the worse was the fact that he had shared his condition with his fiancée, and she said to him, I don't want to be married to a blind man. We're going to need to part ways. And so they do. Years later, he writes this song after attending his sister's wedding when the memory of that painful event came flooding all over again. He never got married. He was completely blind toward the end of his life. And he's pinning these words, Oh, love that will not let me go. There's one kind of love, and then there's God's love. When God pronounces his yes, he meets yes. He doesn't retract it. He doesn't change his mind. It's a yes. That's what Paul's saying, verses 19 to 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul is saying that the message of Christ that he's preached to them is, is a message of salvation, but that message of salvation utterly, and if you simplify it, is it's a message of yes. God loves you. God has saved you. God has brought you into his covenant. You are his people. He will always bless you. But it's always in the name of Christ. He is the very word of promise. He not only is the truth of the promise itself, he is the way through which the promise is carried out, and he's the life. He's the model and the one who then gives you that life of yes through Christ. Have any of you ever tried to count how many promises there are in Scripture? I haven't either. Herbert Lockyer, He's famous for all of his books. He basically writes down all of something in the Bible, and he's got a book that's called All the Promises of the Bible and lists about 8,000 promises that he's found. 8,000. What Paul is saying here is that from the very first promise made in the Garden of Eden to the very last promise made in the book of Revelation, every single one of those promises find their fulfillment in Christ. Every single one of them. That all of these things only come true through his mediation, through his works, by his name, for his glory. So if we understand what Paul's saying here, 
it should change entirely how you read the Old Testament, particularly, but also the New, that all of the Old Testament points us to Christ. All of the Old Testament is to help us to see the yes of Christ. You should never read Old Testament books without Christ in mind as a believer who now knows what the Bible is about. Luke 24, he says this twice in this passage. After his resurrection, he reveals himself to his disciples as well as to the two on the road to Emmaus. And he says to them, everything that was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms was written about me. They all must be fulfilled. All of these promises of God will only come true in me. If you understand that, then that should change your whole view of the Christian life. In fact, we could engage in sort of a liturgical dialogue this morning. And I could ask you some questions. And for every kid in this room who knows the answer to every Sunday school question is what? Jesus, right? If I were to ask you the question, will God forgive me of my sins? Yes, in Jesus' name. Will God bless me rather than curse me? Yes, through Jesus. Will God guide me and lead me in this difficult time? Yes, he will in Jesus. Will he draw near to me in my weakness? Yes, in Jesus he will. Will he use me in his service? Yes, he will strengthen me in Jesus. Will he guard me and defend me? Yes, he will through the strength of Jesus. Will he help me in times of trouble? Yes, he will in Jesus. Will he purify me, enable me to grow in holiness? Yes, through the holiness of Jesus. Will he give me an eternal inheritance? Yes, because Jesus has already received his and he's going to share it with me. It's going to come true in Jesus. It's all true in Jesus. Have you guys seen those, uh, those car ornaments, I guess you would call them? Sometimes it's a dog, sometimes it's something else, but you know, it's on the dash of people's cars and the whole time it just goes like that. I was thinking, you know, since I gave a shot last time at the Bible bookstores always selling trinkets of stupid things, you know. You, you realize they sell little Moses dolls that you can squeeze and it says, thou shalt not. You, the, you realize they actually sell this stuff. Somebody's buying it because it's still online. You could buy it. Go look at CBD. So stupid. I was thinking maybe I would come up with my own line of, instead of dogs, it'd be like just Paul going, yes and amen in Jesus. Because that's essentially what he's saying. Every single promise of God is yes in Jesus. But what about the big questions of life? Like, does God really answer my prayers? Yes, he does in Jesus. That's why we pray, what, in Jesus' name, because we come to him in Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus gave the illustration of the man who goes to his friend's house at midnight and he asks for those three loaves of bread? And at the first, the guy says to him, I can't, I can't give it to you. No, I won't. Why? Because I'm already in bed. My kids are there too. And, and I, I don't have time for this. It's midnight. We're all sleepy. Go away. But then the scripture says, because he keeps bothering him, it will not let him go back to sleep. He finally gives him the loaves that he's asked for. But the, the whole point of this parable is to show us that God is not like that neighbor. He longs to give good gifts to his children. 
He doesn't give them a scorpion when they ask for bread or stone in that sense, but rather he is constantly seeking to give us what is good. He wants to say yes, but only through Jesus. When you trust in the name of Jesus Christ for the first time, you hear God say yes instead of no. If you don't know Jesus, all you have is the law of God. The law is going to continue to say no, no, no. In fact, when you think of the, the way the Scripture describes it, the final day, it says Jesus will separate the, the sheep from the goats. They'll say to the goats, depart from me, I never knew you. Whereas the, the sheep, he says, welcome. It's my inheritance, yes, to everything that you've always wanted. It's yes. What about tomorrow? Will God still love me tomorrow as he has said he has loved me today, even if I've sinned against him? Will he still be gracious to me? Will he still be patient with me? Will he still love me? Will he still be faithful to me when I have not proven faithful to him? What is the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper? What is the whole purpose of baptism? It's not to show what we've done. It's to show what Christ has done for us, that he will keep his promises. That it's all yes and amen in Jesus. Every time we come together, it's for that sake, that purpose to remind us that God keeps his word in Jesus. Which is why we come to him through Jesus. Unlike that man, George Matheson, who stood at the altar, God will never change his mind concerning me. He chose me. He will continue to choose me. He loved me. He will continue to love me. He's waited for me. He will continue to wait for me. He has prepared a place for me that I might be where he is. He will always love me. He will always say yes to me because of Jesus. Of course, that's only true for those who are in Jesus. Those who are still outside of the covenant of grace, he says that they are strangers to the covenants of promise. They don't have this yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's only the children of God who have tasted this. When they cry out for manna from heaven, he gives it to them. When they cry out for the Holy Spirit, he gives it to them. But for those who refuse to believe, for those who refuse to repent, Jesus says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. On the other hand, we who know the Lord, and continue to hear the, the, the word of Jesus now, eventually, whether we depart before Christ's return or when he returns and we're transformed, we will enter into God's paradise, God's world of love, a world in which the word no is no longer spoken. It's a world of yes. How can I say that? Because the law passes away. There's no need for it anymore. The law continues to say no, 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 thou shalt not. But in heaven, you have not a sinful nature any longer. All God can say to you is yes, yes, yes. That's all he wants to say. That's all he will say. It's a world of yes. But until that time, we as believers now understanding these things through the Spirit are thankful for the law of God that continues to teach us to say no to ungodliness ourselves. We're learning from these things. We're teaching our children these things. The law is not meant to save you. It's meant to show you no. You don't deserve this. You've sinned. Here are the consequences of your sin. Let me point you to the one who can give you the yes. 
the same way those who are on the outside need to be taught the same things. The law of God cannot save you. You cannot try to earn God's favor. It will never work. You can never please God because he needs perfection. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Why? For breaking one sin, one law of God. How many laws have we broken? Multitudes. You will never make it in that way. The only way God will ever say yes to you is by trusting in the name of Jesus. The one to whom God always says yes, because he pleases God perfectly all the time. God always wants to say yes to his son, and we who now trust in Christ now also receive that yes. And because we receive that yes, we add our word in response. Amen. Amen literally means it is true. I agree with you. We say amen. When, even when God points at our sin, we say amen, because amen means I agree with you. I'm in sin. I need to repent of that sin. The word repentance literally means to think the same way God does. I'm saying, yes, that's bad. That's awful. That's evil. That's rebellious. I don't want that. Instead, I want what God wants. So I say amen to that. And every promise of God that he's ever made in Scripture, I say amen to that because I know it's true. I know that it's coming true. And I know that it will be completely true when Christ ushers me into his kingdom. And therefore, so as we sang in the hymn earlier, let the amen sound from his people again and again and again because they have heard the word yes from God in Christ Jesus and they want to give their response of thanksgiving. They want to give their response of praise. Amen and amen. May it be unto me just as you said. I trust you in the name of Jesus. And amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to hold on to the truth of this word that has been given to us this day. Help us to understand that the promises of God are meant for us who have trusted in Jesus. Lord, help us to believe those promises. Help us to add our amen to those promises. Help us to cling to the Christ who always will bring these promises to fruition. Lord, help us to cling to to the one who gives us the yes. But at the same time, Lord, we pray that we would not be afraid of the no. We would not be afraid of the thou shalt nots, for we know that those things tell us where we have gone astray. Lord, help us to respond to them by faith. Say amen to those things as well, to know that there's only one way to please the Lord, and that's through faith in Jesus and through faith in his perfect works. We pray these things in Jesus' name.